I didn't ever think I would be in a place like Minnesota, but here we are, and we are just, we're, we're thrilled to be a part of this. We're, we're, we're excited to see what God has in store for this church and uh, for each of you, and uh, we just, we, we believe that, uh, that God has good plans for here, for what he's doing, not just here, but what he's doing on the earth and how we're a part of that. We're part of the kingdom. We are a, a part of some, something that's so much greater than ourselves, and the kingdom of God is really a privilege to be a part of the kingdom of God, and it's a privilege for us to serve in this capacity, and um, just thank you. We're very, very blessed to be a part of this church, and um, we're very, very humbled to be here, so thank you again. Let's pray. How do you transition from that, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lord, we love you. God, we honor you, and, and Lord, as we continue to look at your word and this uh, this thing we call the story, um, Lord, we see your hand, your guidance, your Holy Spirit, we see redemption, we see, Lord, even in some of the hard texts that we, that we read in the people of old and uh, in the Old Testament, how, Lord, it can be so separate from the New Testament, but Lord, all along you were pointing to the story of redemption. And then, Lord, uh, in, a, in a, an amazing thing, you've, you've called us each to be a part of that, to be a part of your story. And Lord, I pray, God, today that we would, uh, again, once again, hear your voice, what you're saying through this story, uh, this part of the scripture, and Lord, that you would encourage our hearts, Lord, as we serve you, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, you know, the word of God is really about that. I mean, it, it, you, you, see, you see patterns in the Old Testament, a lot of people... You know, and I think that that's why it's so good that we look at the Old Testament. You know, the Bible is complete, and we don't just cut out the Old Testament and say, well, we're under a new covenant. But it's what is the purpose of the Old Testament? As we look at the Old Testament, obviously, the Old Testament, parts of the Old Testament point us to redemption, or all of it points us to redemption. And the lives that we see aren't just these people that we have considered to be heroes of the faith. They are, they are somewhat heroes, and we, we admire things that they've done. But if you look back and you look at the lineage, even of lineage of Jesus, you see a lot of brokenness, don't you? I mean, you see a lot of dysfunction. You see a lot of problems. You see them taking the blessings of God, taking them for granted, abusing them. You see God's people, Israel, at times serving God and then at times running away from God, and you see wicked kings, you see you know, godly kings, and then you, you just see all of these stories unfold, and a lot of times we can miss and, and miss the point of redemption, that they weren't somehow these perfect people that had it all together. I think that that's why we see their lives and we see their stories unfold, is they needed redemption just as much as we did. But the two main themes, I think, of Scripture, number one is that idea of redemption, and the other one is that is God is working in the midst of everything, even when it seems chaotic or random. That's the story today as we look at the life of Joseph. This story of Joseph has spoken to me, I can't tell you how, how much. I mean, some of you guys have heard this if you've... If I've talked with you personally at all, you, you know this to be true, but when we moved out east, you know, we moved from Montevideo, we moved out east, and we, 
you know, felt like that God had called us out there, which he did. We, 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 we felt it was a very clear thing that we were supposed to go. And then, then you get there and you have in your mind how things are going to map out and how things are going to work out. And then they don't happen that way at all. And it seems like everything underneath you is just shifting sand. And it's where, where, where is, there any, is there any firm footing at all to be found in this? And you're like, God, I thought you said this. And it makes you question and it makes you have doubts. And it, because here's the thing there's times where I'd go, Man, God, I thought you said this. And, and it's like he whispers to my heart, I did. Well, then, then where does that leave you? Okay, nothing makes sense. If you called me here, then what? Because we like to see the big story, don't we? And we don't get that. But God is working. And you see it in this story, in the story of Joseph. But today we're going to continue in the story. Last week we looked at God builds a nation through Abraham and Sarah. I'm just going to give a little backstory as we work up to Joseph here. Um, you know, because I, I, th- I think it's good just to kind of hear a little bit of the backstory. But this, uh, Abraham and Sarah last week, this couple who would not have been a human or logical choice. God says, I'm going to make a promise to you, Abraham. I'm going to, your, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. I'm making a covenant with you. And here they are, old age, beyond the age of childbearing years. And it would not have been Uh, a logical choice for any of us to pick, but yet God sees them and he says, I can work, I can do a miracle with them. But he makes this promise to Abraham. Abraham, it says, believed God and it was counted for him as righteousness. But how many knows that even in the midst of sometimes God speaking, that we can interfere with that sometimes, or maybe a lot of times. So God speaks, your descendants are going to be as numerous as start look up there, I'm making this promise with you, Abraham believed God, and then so, you know, one night he and Sarah, you know, maybe having coffee and maybe some pie or something, and I don't know, that, that's just kind of Western thinking there, um, um, I just get, you know, I see them talking, and he said, you know what, God's made me a promise that we're going to have descendants that going to be numerous as the stars. Well, Sarah laughed about this when, when she overheard the angel kind of talking to Abraham. And, she's, and she, you got to see her 90 years old sitting across from him and just starts giggling again saying, you know, maybe so, maybe, maybe, you, maybe we heard, you know, part of it. Well, maybe, maybe it's not quite like that. Here's what we'll do. And they start taking matters into their own hands. God has made a promise. And she said, you know, this is not, this is not too strange, but here you take my maidservant Hagar and, 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 and you sleep with her. And then that's how God will do this. As if to say, God can't do a miracle here. He can't, he can't, you know, we're, we're going to not take him at his word. We're going to assume that we know. Be very careful. That's how we can approach God sometimes. So they take matters into their own hands. But that's, what not, that's not what God had in mind. And so God still is faithful, and he provides them a son in Isaac. And then we know the story. God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. Abraham says, all right, I'll do it. God, you, I, I, I believe that you can... Raise the dead. I don't understand why you're asking me to do this, but I will, I'll do it. So he goes up and he takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah, which is, 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 we know to be Calvary. It's a pointing of redemption. And so he, you know, he's going to sacrifice his son. The angel says, don't. I understand that you're not withholding your own son from me. I understand that you're going to be obedient. He was, he was blessed by Abraham's trust and obedience. So even this man who had taken matters into own, his own hands, was, we see redemption in that story. 
And so this points us to that many, many years later, there would be another father and son up on that mountain, Calvary. The father offering Jesus. And the scripture says, like, you know, what, what it says about Abraham, says that he did not kill his own son. But here's what it says about the father. He said, he did not withhold his son, yet he gave him up and he died for us. The story of redemption. And we see that on that mountain. So Isaac grows up. God gets, finds a wife for him. He marries Rebekah. Rebekah gives birth to Jacob and Esau, the twins. It's interesting because Esau was born first and Jacob had a hold of his foot. And they named him Jacob. The name Jacob means deceiver. Names mean things. Make sure you do a little study on your name before you name your kids. But Jacob means deceiver. But so Jacob and Esau, they're born, they grow up, and we see that, that, that Jacob is even, as a part of his life, deceiver is who he is. He manipulates his brother to get his, his birthright. And then he later deceives his father to get the firstborn blessing. Remember, Isaac is blind, so he dresses up like Esau to get his father's blessing. He steals his father's bless, uh, steals his father's blessing from Esau and steals his birthright. He was a mess. And yet God was looking at this mess and saying, I can redeem that. And we see him later wrestling with God. And I love that story how as he wrestled with God, God says, What is your name? You know, it's not like God, when he asks a question, God's not looking for information. God's not like, you know, I'm confused here. But God's, what is your name? And he says, I'm Jacob. I'm deceiver. I've always been that. And he said, today you're no longer going to be Jacob. You will be Israel. But Jacob was a mess. He gets right with God. He goes and he works for his, uh, his, his a distant relative, Laban. He falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. He wants to marry her. And here's the deceiver that gets deceived. Laban tricks Jacob and gives him his other daughter, Leah, as a wife. So he marries her and Rachel, and they have like this childbearing competition because it was honorable to give your husband children. Hopefully in the Jewish day, it was male children so that they could carry on the name. And so Rachel can't have kids. Leah has some kids. So Rachel says, here's my servant. It's Bilhah. So she has some kids, and now... Leah can't have any kids, so she resents Rachel's maidservant, so she gives, her, gives him her maidservant. And then she starts bearing kids, and then finally Rachel can have kids. Why am I telling you this? Because this is a mess, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. I mean, look at this story. This is complex, I mean, even for Jerry Springer. And it's, we look at these people in the Bible and they say, you know, Jacob, he was the father, you know, his name was Israel. So he's the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and we can just say how heroic, but you won't see this, all this other stuff. You won't see that in kids' Bibles. We got this little toddler Bible with, with Judah. So, and we read it and we're like, you know, it's all of a sudden, and then boom, and he just has 12 kids and it's beautiful and everybody's clapping. And we're like, well, I'm glad they don't, they don't you know, we're glad they don't get toddlers all that. But how, how did he get all those kids? Well, let me tell you. Because people can say, you know, they look back and, and they can almost be critical of, you know, where, where even we talk about, you know, well, we want a biblical definition of marriage. 
I've heard people say, you know, are you sure you want that? How about a God definition of marriage? That's even better. Because a biblical, there, there were some people that made some horrible decisions, and this was not God's best, yet he redeems it. God works in the midst of brokenness. So you have two wives, two maidservants. Dysfunction brings about the 12 tribes of Israel. Birthed in dysfunction. That encourages me that God can use me. In those times where it's chaotic, in those times where things don't make sense, you know, sometimes you can be going along and you're serving God and you're, and you're loving God and you're listening to God and you can be obedient to God and things don't make sense. Other times we bring it on ourselves, sinfulness, bad decisions. But you know, we serve a redeemer. He can redeem our past. And so today's story as we kind of, now the reason why I want to give you that kind of backdrop is here's one of those kids, one of those 12 sons is Joseph. And if you're tracking along in the story, you hear a little bit what's called the upper story and the lower story. And so this is, this is something that you, you'll hear those phrases some if you're tracking along. Basically what that means, it's the unseen versus the seen. The unseen versus the seen. The upper story is what God sees. He sees it all. He's got it all figured out. He doesn't miss any details. He's not up there confused going, oh, I didn't see that coming. He sees it all. And he lives in the upper story. And up there he is redeeming. He is restoring. He is calling people to himself. He's using brokenness and he's using frailty and he sees it all. And then you have the lower story. That's our place. And the unseen versus the seen. The upper story is what we do not see. The, the lower story is our story. And it's so hard at times to think that those two stories are working together. That in the scene, in our natural world, things seem random and chaotic. But God is working in the upper story. Colossians 3, 1 through 2, Paul says this. And I love that Paul had a good grasp on this concept of the upper story and the lower story. That's why he could say the things he said. That's why he could endure beatings and say, I, I do this for Christ. I live for Christ. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. I win either way. And he says this in Colossians 3. He's encouraging this church. Because again, a lot of these first century churches were under great persecution. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Be encouraged. You are raised with Christ. When you belong to Jesus, when you've surrendered your heart, when you've turned from your sins and you put your trust in Jesus, then he says, you have been raised with Christ. So then set your hearts on things above. Because again, a lot of these churches were going through some very difficult things. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And he said, no, not, not just set your heart, but set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. And what is Paul saying? I mean, you can read into some of this. He said, if you keep on setting your heart and your mind on just the earthly things of what's going on, you're going to get really discouraged. And he's saying there is this upper story. There is God at work. There is God on the throne of heaven. And he does not get shocked or surprised by anything. He's working on your behalf and he's moving. Set your heart and your mind on things above. 
But that is a challenge for us. And we'll have to daily work at that. I'm telling you, we will have to daily work at it. But that was Joseph's story. And it's our story. And so my prayer is that we look at Joseph's life. I want you to be encouraged today. To see that nothing in our lives is by accident. It's not happenstance. It's not random. But as a, again, as a follower of Jesus, you've been raised with Christ. That means you have repented. You've turned your life to Christ. You put your trust in him. Then we can see the upper story. You know, we can't see completely. So we can trust the upper story is a better way to say it, that he is working in every situation, even in the mundane of the lower story. But the questions that we ask is this, is he really in control? Is he really sovereign? Most of our frustration in this lower story, especially with God, is that, and this is very important, and I, and I know this to be true because I'm, I'm preaching it myself as much as I'm preaching anyone because I've walked this out, especially in those confusing times, is that I, I was trying to conform him to me. Instead of being conformed to him, we kind of, and we, we, won't, we won't say this, but we will live this where we kind of, we, we drift up above him and we are calling the shots. And then we want him to be conformed to us. But we need to be reminded that he does not exist for us. God is not some glorified genie that we give commands or he gives us wishes and we just tell him what we want him to do. We exist for him. We exist for his glory. This is his story, not ours. The beautiful thing is he's invited us into the story in relationship with him. But it's to bring him glory, whatever happens. And that's really important for us to understand that is I, I exist, God, in relationship with you and to bring you glory, whatever is happening. And that's why putting our trust in him helps us to get that revelation. But let me say this, trust is a process, isn't it? You know, we can forgive quickly. I mean, it's still, uh, that's still hard. But trust is built up over time. And so trust is a process, and we will have to work at it every single day. But then this is the questions. Uh, these are the questions. Can he be glorified in your present situation? Can he be glorified in your present circumstance? And based on what you're going through, sometimes you wrestle with that and go, I, I don't see how any good could come out of this. It's hard for me to see. Is he still on the throne even if you can't see or perceive him? Is he always in control or do we think sometimes he temporarily gives up control? Does he kind of turn the lights off and go take a nap and say, you guys have at it, good luck? Because trust is being reliant on his integrity, his strength, and his ability. And to serve him with confident expectation. God, I know that you're working. I know that you're here. Even though I can't feel you, even though I can't perceive you, I know that you are here. And so that's kind of the buildup as we look at Joseph. Let's take a look at Joseph. Genesis 50, 14 through 20. Somewhat the end of the story of Joseph but I want to look at this text as we kind of then will drop back. If you can't read that, sorry, the font might be a little bit small, but hopefully you can. But Genesis 50, 14 through 20. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. So 
We see them, he has taken a place of prominence, a place of leadership. His dad has died. They had been reunited together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Joseph reassures his brothers. When Joseph's brothers saw that, that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you were to say to Joseph. So they're kind of conjuring up this plan and saying, Joseph's going to get angry. He's going to, now that dad's gone, he's going to take it out on us. But, so let's, let's kind of come up with a story. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs that they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. And this is that key passage here. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. What was being accomplished? The saving of many lives. This is somewhat of the end of the saga here. And the reason why I wanted to start here. It's kind of like those, you know, if you ever like movies or stories, you read a book, you know how they'll start sometimes at the end. And then you're at this place of saying, okay, here's what has transpired. Now we're going to spend the rest of the time saying what built up to this. I like movies that do that. They kind of give you the rest of the story. But Joseph, how, how, can he, how is he able to say this? He said, you intended to harm me, but God had intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So we're going we're to cue in on that phrase a lot and say that, you know, that again, you're going to see redemption unfold in God's plan. And so you hear at the end of the story, but let's, let's find out how we got there. A lot of you are familiar with the story, but I think it's important for us to look at it again. How is he able to say, God intended it for good? You meant it for evil, God intended for good. Well, let's look. If you drop back, Joseph is born of Rachel. He's the firstborn of Rachel. Rachel is the one that, jo that, jo that Jacob loved first. He loved her. He favored her. She couldn't have children. So then later on, she has Joseph. And so Jacob is just, he loves this boy, and he is the favored son of Jacob, of all these 12 boys, he is the favored son. And guess what? Joseph knows that. His father gives him, you know, we have this amazing coat of many colors. It's to remind him. It's almost like this badge of honor that Joseph wears that I'm the favorite. It'd be like us, you know, having the t-shirt, dad loves me best. And he wears it all the time. The coat of many colors, you know, I mean, it's like just in case. Hey, boys. Remember the coat. And so he knows that he is the favorite son. He has this coat to remind him, and he, it helps to remind his brothers. Needless to say, they don't care for him at all. They don't like this young punk who thinks that he is so special. You look at it this way, you know, kind of bring it in at our times. At Christmas, they get a bag of fruit. Did, you, did anybody else have the, the brown bag of fruit? Is that... Is that is that a Minnesota thing too? You know, bag of fruit and, 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 and mixed nuts. That's, that was one of the things that we got at Christmas. Now, you're glad that that's not the only thing 
Of course, my mom, the reason why she kind of implemented was when she was a kid, they were very poor, and that's a lot of times that would be all they got. What if we could look at this story? Joseph Brothers got all the bag of fruit, and he got the iPhone. That's kind of to give you an idea of what's going on here, you know, is, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're eating their apple, and he's like, I'm texting my friends, you know. Um. So there's some deep resentment that he had, that these guys have of him, not to mention, and it says this in the Bible, that he would give reports to his father about his brothers of what they were doing, good or bad. The informant. My sister was the informant. Now, if she listens to this message, I love you, Lisa, but you were the informant and you remember that. She would watch, she would creak, peek through the door and watch me and my brother and just wait for us to do something to Adeline. I'm telling mom and dad, so she was our informant. So Joseph was this informant to his father. And so then to top it off, okay, this is bad enough when we, as we paint this picture, but he has these dreams from God at age 17. You know, at 17, you know everything, right? Wrong, you don't know anything. <laughs> so he has these dreams, they are from God. And the interpretation of these dreams is, are that, that he's going to have a place of prominent leadership and his brothers will at some point bow down to him. Well, you know, he has the first dream and he comes and you can just see him with the you know, coat of many colors and his iPhone. I, I just kind of paint this picture. And he goes to his brothers and he tells them the dream. Hey, you know, there were these sheaves of wheat, and uh, your sheaves all bowed down to mine. You know, what do you guys think about that? You know, one of them is about, I'm going to punch him. Let me punch him. Then the second dream, he tells his father, and then his father's even doubting. He's like, that's a little out of line there, you know, buddy. Because it's in this, it's like the, you know, the sun, moon, and stars. like your mom and dad, they're all going to be bowing down to you. So just FYI, don't tell your resentful family members about how great you're going to be. To just kind of, that, that one's for free. But he's got these dreams from God that they're going to be bowing down to him. What's his brother's response? They didn't say, you know, I think you've really heard from God. Let's pray for you about that. And let's, let's just see. Absolutely not. They do not like him even more. And so one day that he's, he's going out to go kind of check in on him. The dad goes, go find your brothers and see what they're up to. So we, they find him and, and immediately they see him and they, you know, they, they're working hard. You know, they see the guy, you know, they see the coat of many colors coming from a distance, you know, the walking rainbow. Let's, let, you know, let's just pound him. And so they see him and they immediately say, you know, I mean, a couple of them are saying, let's just, let's just, let's do him in. Let's kill him. Of course, you have a couple of the older brothers that are saying that now nah, that probably wouldn't be the best thing. You know, dad would, it would just be heartbreaking to dad. But a couple of them, you know, so a couple of them want to save him. So they throw him into this pit to kind of think about what should we do? And along comes, you know, these Ishmaelite traders and they said, let's sell him into slavery. See how great he becomes. So, yeah, let's do that and sell him into slavery. So, the, uh, you know, one brother comes and goes, where, where is he at? We sold him into slavery. He said, this is going to be heartbreaking. And so they, you know, get this plan. It's interesting, after, before, you know, before they sell him into slavery, they take his coat of many colors. I, I always think that's interesting. Let's, let's take his gift. And so what they do is let's hatch this plan. Let's tear it up. Let's put this killed an animal, put some blood on it, and then we'll just go and play kind of ignorant. And, Dad, do you recognize this coat? Of course he did. And, he, you know, then Jacob is just just... I mean, it's just heartbroken. An animal has killed him. My son's gone, and it's just heart-wrenching. 
And so they've sold him into slavery. And Jacob thinks he's dead, and Jacob just goes into deep mourning. So he goes in, and, and we know him to be a very strong young man. So he ends up in Potiphar's house. He is, he's a slave in, in a home. And, and you, know, you, you know he's got to be thinking, God, where are you at? What, I thought you spoke to me. Here's an awesome part of the story that says this about him several times. Genesis 39.2 says, but the Lord was with Joseph. But the Lord was with Joseph. And he found favor with Potiphar, and he was, became his head servant. And so then you're thinking, well, is this the, I'm, I'm a head slave, is this the kind of, the, is this the manifestation of the dreams, what was all of that about? I'm a slave, I'm, I'm the head slave, and I've, I've got favor, that's great. So he just remained faithful. And again, this reveals his heart is that he's living somewhat in the upper story. God, I don't get it, but I'm going to be faithful. Let me ask you, are you faithful even when things aren't going your way? Are you faithful even when trials and, and, and tribulations come and you don't maybe like your circumstance, you don't like what's going on? Will you remain faithful? And he remained faithful. And so what happens next is incredibly hard. If you're tracking along with the story, it's one of those life does not make sense moments. Potiphar has a wife. She's very beautiful. She comes to Joseph, and it says she came to him every day, trying to seduce him. And he keeps telling her, I'm not, he said, you know, he said, my, the, my master has not withheld anything from me but you, and I'm not going to do that. This would violate my relationship with God. I'm not going to go there. So he's trying to remain faithful. So he tells her no day after day after day. Until finally, there's no one in the house but her and him. And she really just tries to corner him. And he runs for his life. Second Timothy, if you fast forward, says he, he was fleeing youthful lusts. I mean, he, there's a temptation there. I, I've got to get out of here. And, and so she grabs his garment. It's gone. And so then she devises a plan. Well, this is going to go, not go well for me. So I'm going to accuse him of trying to rape me. And you're thinking from his perspective, yeah, she's going to say that, but all the, God's going to vindicate me, right? Isn't that what God does? He vindicates us. He, I'm, I'm, I'm having integrity. I'm being faithful. I'm working hard. I'm saying no to her. I'm doing the right thing. Shouldn't God vindicate me? And this is where that moment, again, if you think that, sometimes we conform God to us instead of us to him. She falsely accused him, they believe, and he's thrown into prison. And can you imagine those first few days where he's sitting in that prison? How difficult. Going, God, is this how integrity is repaid? What's going on? What is happening in my story? So he ends up in prison, and it says this about him. It says, yet the Lord was with him. I'm thinking, you know, at that point, that would be a real test, wouldn't it? Lord, you're with me, but how about getting me out of this if you're with me? How about vindicating me? How about doing something where I can obviously see your hand at work here? You're with me, but now what? And so he could have just swallowed this bitter pill and just crawled up in the corner of his cell and just waited to die. So forget it. That's it. 
but he kept his eyes on God. And again, he starts, as hard as it is, he starts looking at the upper story again. God, I have no earthly idea what you're doing, but I know you're in control. I know you're working. So he's in prison for a while, and it's interesting because God gives him favor in there. And so he becomes kind of over of the other prisoners. Isn't that amazing where he's thinking, you know, I got all this favor, but God, how about, how about favor to get me out? I'll vote for that one. But as the story goes, we know that God doesn't waste time. God doesn't waste anything. And so we have two very close workers of the king. You have this, this baker. You have the, 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 uh, the wine taster, the cup bearer of the, of the pharaoh. They end up in prison with Joseph. And they both have dreams. And so Joseph, by God, is given the interpretation of the dreams And so even in the midst of this, God's still using him. And so he gives him the dreams, you know, and and, and if you're you're tracking along and you know the story, one of the the interpretations is really well, the cupbearer is like, you know, you're going to live and you're not, sorry. In three days, you're going to be impaled on a pole. It's not going to go well with you. Then he tells the the, the cupbearer, he says, hey, you're going to live, you know, this is the interpretation. When you go back to Pharaoh, remember me. Now he's just trying to work the angles, man. He's like, this guy works. Remember me. He could get me out of here. One word of Pharaoh could get me out of here. You know, at this time, I don't, I'm, not, I'm sure he's probably not even thinking that I'll be, the, I'll be kind of the VP of Egypt. I'll be the second in command. And he's probably just thinking, God's going to use this to get me out of here. Exonerate me. And so this is his, he's probably holding on to hope. Remember me. But then it says this in Scripture. It says the cupbearer left, and you know, he, he's delighted to have his job back, so it says that he promptly forgot Joseph. Don't you love that when you're promptly forgotten? And he's not just forgotten for like a week. He's forgotten for two years. Can you, are you tracking along with this? Can you feel the hope kind of almost seeping out of him? It's like, when am I going to get a break? And so this is kind of another painful twist. He gives, the, he gives them the interpretation that it's good. Remember me, I'm promptly forgotten for two more years. And so it leads us up to Pharaoh having two dreams of his own that trouble him. And guess what? Nobody in his kingdom can interpret. And then the cupbearer, you know, has the light go off. Bing, hey, there was a guy that I was in prison with. He interprets dreams. Bring him. And so we know the story that Joseph interprets these dreams about famine coming. There's you know, going to be a time of blessing, then there's going to be a time of famine. Tells the Pharaoh, he says, you know, you need to have somebody that's kind of overseeing this. I'm encouraging you. And he says, you'll be in charge. And so he puts Joseph over all of this, the, the distribution, and he says, you'll be second in command to me. And then the famine is very severe at the end of the seven years of plenty. Then you have the famine being very severe, and people start coming to Egypt to get food including Jacob's sons. Now you start seeing kind of the story start molding together. God's orchestrating all of it. They come to Joseph. They don't know who he is, but yet they bow down before him. Here's the dreams. They have no idea who he is and say, you know, have mercy. We're come from, you know, 
way far away and we're, we're here to get food. And so Joseph recognizes them and he actually kind of has a little sinful game with them that he plays and for a bit. Because he wants to bring Benjamin, his younger brother, he wants to know if his father's doing well. And so then you track along and it's the passage that I started out with. He then reveals himself to his brother, who he is. And there's a bit more drama that unfolds and but he doesn't hold on to the offense. He doesn't hold on to what they did and, or unforgiveness toward them. And then that's how he's able to say, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Because he said what, he, what God's been up to in this whole thing is the saving of many. There was a famine coming that would have obliterated people, God's people. He said, but God was saving many lives. And so I had to endure some of these things down here on the lower story, but God's upper story was working all along. And so God used me and God even used the brokenness and God used this hard times. God used me even when I was arrogant and God used me even when I was the favored son and, and then you guys turned on me, but God was in control of it all and he was, saw the big picture and it was to save the lives of many. He was able to say this because he trusted God. He relied on God's strength. He relied on God's integrity. He believed that God was in control. But it was a process. Psalm 105 says that the Lord tested his character while he was in chains. And so when you're going through something, if you're going through something now, if it's a hard season and you can't see it, your character and your integrity are being tested. I'm sure Joseph had doubts and questions, just like David did. I'm sure he had struggles and heartaches. I'm sure that it was not just that he woke up every day and said, God's in control. It's going to be great. I think when he was forgotten, these were painful things. And that's normal, but he kept his eyes on God. He believed that God was more about the big picture, the upper story, than just his temporary happiness. He fixed his eyes, as Paul said, on what is unseen instead of just the seen the obvious and God was after saving the lives of many you know that Jesus is still about saving the lives of many Luke 19 the son of man came to seek and save the lost and so Jesus as he used Joseph and he said God meant it for good to save the lives of many he can use our lives he can use our story to save the lives of many this is about proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming with our mouth, but proclaiming with our lives too. This is why Paul could say in Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good. This is kind of the, the Genesis 50.20 passage of the New Testament. God meant it all for good. And Paul says God works all things out for good to those who love him and are called according to, to his purpose in Christ. You know, it isn't God's plan to make us healthy, wealthy, and happy. That's not his primary purpose in, in, as he's creating us. His plan is for us that he will be revealed in and through us. No matter what's going on in our lives, that he will be revealed in and through us. It's not about us. It's always been about him. And so God can use anything to save the lives of many. And so if we don't get this revelation, I'm going to kind of close with these thoughts. We have two responses. 
We can tend to have two responses when things aren't making sense and it seems chaotic and random. But if we don't get the revelation of that God is working all things out for good, here's the first wrong response. Let's go to the the next page. First wrong response is we take it out on God or we hold God in contempt. This is where you have these, you know, if God's so great, so loving, and so kind, then why this? I've seen people that have just rejected their faith because of hard things that they're going through. Well, I thought God loved me. And again, it's not wrong to have questions and doubts, but when we allow doubt and bitterness to eat us up, that we begin to hold God in contempt, we stop trusting Him, then we can turn our backs on Him and just say, whatever. This happens if we just live simply in the lower story. How could Paul say in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good is because he lived it. You know, we have that in 2 Corinthians, they were shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was rejected. He was imprisoned. And if he just lived in the lower story, just one of those things could have just sent him over the edge and said, forget it. I didn't sign up for this. But he called all those sufferings, it's interesting, he calls them light and temporary. Because of God's upper story, he fixed his eyes on Jesus. Second wrong response is this, when we don't get, the, when we don't get that revelation, we justify disobedience and sin. Because the logical end result to take when we, when, we, when we hold God in contempt is that we turn to disobedience and sin and we, just, we justify it. Well, who cares? It doesn't matter anyway. I'm trying to live for God. I'm trying to do the right things, and it seems like everything's going wrong. It could have been Joseph's response. Remember, with Potiphar's wife especially, I'm doing the right thing. I'm, 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 I'm maintaining my integrity. I'm doing what God has asked me to do, and I'm running the other way. And now I'm falsely accused, and I'm ending up in, in prison. If he took his eyes off the upper story, he could have just said, forget it. And this can happen when we use our relationship with Jesus as a means to get what we want. And we have to check our hearts regularly in this. That he created us for relationship, but more importantly, to bring glory and honor to him and his name. To bring attention to him. The song earlier, to magnify him. To reveal Christ in and through us. You know his no answer to a prayer doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. And I think that that's where we can get into this very messy thing in in Christendom. That you ask the Lord for something and and it's not happening and we can then torment ourselves to try to figure out what's going on. His no answer does not mean that he has stopped loving you. Now sometimes his no answer can be because of sin and we need to repent and get right with him. There There are those times. But sometimes we're walking, we're trying to do the right thing. Things don't make sense. But we are not in a relationship to God to tell him what he will or will not do. So when we get the revelation of God working out all things together for good, for his glory, we gain two promises. And let's look at the good news here. So the first right response is God can take all things in our lives and redeem them. All of it. 
He can take your past sins and redeem that. He can take your brokenness and redeem that. He can be seen in and through everything that is happening, even in the most mundane or painful or seemingly random. He can use the painful season in your life to minister to others as they see how you respond. When we understand this, when we live in this revelation, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted by God. That's not, it's not just that he, you know, that you were just forgotten about for a season. No, he still loved you. And even though you're going through maybe a silent, hard, seemingly mundane you know, time, it's not wasted. He's still walking with you. He can use that hard moment to speak to someone else because you maintain the right spirit and the right attitude. And you maintain your integrity and your character. Remember what Peter says? Be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you. How did you make it? What happened with you? I see that you went through that. And people watch your lives. Watch, they watch us. And they want to know. But God can use that hard season, that hard moment to speak into someone else. Because ultimately God used it, as, as Joseph said, for the sake of saving many. God redeems our lives and the things that we face to minister to those around us. Number two, here's the next promise. Keeping our eyes on God's upper story keeps the lower story in perspective. Keeping our eyes on God's upper story keeps the lower story in perspective. See, because we can confidently trust God that he is working even when we can't see it. And you can have that honest relationship with God to say, God, I don't get it, but I know that you're working. And it keeps it in perspective. Perspective is a wonderful thing, isn't it? When we're reminded sometimes and we have an opportunity to get, to get something right with God, it's a great thing to be reminded sometimes where you come across and you hear someone else's story. And I think that's some why, why sometimes people endure things is we can say, whoa, God, help me to back up with my attitude real quick because, man, you see what somebody else has, has endured. perspective. Things won't be easy, but nothing will be compared, as Paul says, there's nothing compares to the surpassing greatness of him, knowing him. Jesus is our prize, not what he can do for him, not what we get from him. We get him. We get him at the end of it all. And some things won't make sense until we reach eternity. I mean, you have Joseph's stories that, that, that maybe things came into focus you know, later on, and he could see it. There are some things that we won't get until we get to eternity. But if we have our eyes on Jesus, we can say, as Paul, it's light and temporary. And so in the meantime, we walk with him, we love him, we give our lives to him every day, we believe that everything is happening, that everything that is happening is working out for our good and his glory. We do what Hebrews 12 says, fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus, we run with endurance because it's not going to be easy. And we'll have to get up every day and put our trust in God and then tomorrow trust in God and the next day trust in God because that's how he set it up. We fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and we're going to end with communion. Lord, thank you 
as we look at uh, Joseph's story, God, we, we see a lot of ourselves. We see the things that we're facing, the things that we are going through. And Lord, thank you that in Christ it's not wasted, that you are at work. And I pray for each person in this room, Lord, that whatever they are going through, whatever they might face, whatever is up ahead, Lord, that we would all fix our eyes on you. Lord, we would trust that you are working in the upper story, even when things in the lower story are very difficult. So God, I pray a blessing over your people today. May they leave here today knowing, God, that you spoke and just in a new sense, new awareness that you are with them and that you want to walk with them. I'm going to have Carrie share something and then we're going to move into receiving communion. You may have heard it said oftentimes, or maybe not. The story was told this week, this pastor repeated again to the people in his church. He said, if you were the only one, Ken, if you were the only one, Dave, if you were the only one, Donna, Lynn, you're sitting here and rattle all your names off, Carrie, Bruce, if you were the only one, the only person on earth, Jesus would have died for you, just for you. And then a little boy stood up in the church and yelled out and said, well, then you must have been the one to drive the nails in his hand. Maybe you were the one that made the crown that they drove into his skull. Maybe I'm the one that pounded the nails in his feet. Maybe I'm the one that made the cross. We have to get, as believers, as a body of Christ, we have to get, when he says it is finished, it's finished. It's finished. He died for us regardless of the fact that we are the one that drove the nails. He died for all of, of us, and we all played a part. But we're free because of the blood of the Lamb. And as we... Move into this time of communion again. I, I just want to reiterate um, why we do this. It's more than a religious exercise that we do. Um, we are commanded by Jesus. And later on, Paul reiterates it, but we are, to, we are commanded to do this until the Lord returns to proclaim his death. Because without his death, without the shedding of his blood, we, none of us have a chance. You know, it was that moment, it was that time on the cross that Jesus endured the wrath of God for the sins of humanity. My sin, your sin included in that. And he took upon himself, and he who knew no sin became sin for us. And so when we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, a couple of things as we receive these elements... Um, First is that you don't have to be a member of this church to take communion. What we do ask is that, that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of your life. 